Good evening. Welcome any visitors that are here. We are currently in our verse-by-verse exposition of Zechariah. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Zechariah chapter 2, please. And Lord willing, we will get through 2 through 4. They're not that long. Um, Zechariah, interesting character. The visions that are given to Zechariah basically deal with the present deliverance from Babylon, but very short. They basically have the major theme of the millennial kingdom. Um, he has more regarding the millennial kingdom than all the minor prophets put together. Um, we've been touching on every, in this visions that began with the one and it kind of builds upon it. And it's the same kind of theme, but expansion of it. Um, in, in chapter two now, we have, um, the surveyor's line. This is the third vision of a man with the, the measuring line here. If you count them as ten visions, this would be the fourth. Okay, there's a reason I don't count them, and I've given them in the introduction, so I won't go through it again. But let's read here chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. We have the vision and the questions. He says, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem to see what its width and what its length is. And so the prophet raised his eyes here, and he saw this man with the measuring rod. Most likely, it's a reference to the angel of the Lord, as you follow through the whole uh, narrative here. Uh, uh, Christophany, an appearance of Jesus Christ prior to the incarnation. We run into him all the time. Um, the measuring line simply signifies that God's about to move on behalf of his people Israel. Uh, you see it in Jeremiah 31, 38 through 39. You see it in Ezekiel 40, verse 3, for the uh, millennial temple. As God begins to move and to draw uh, the expansion and all that will take place there, that uh, aspect of Ezekiel 40 to 48, that temple will not fit on the Temple Mount right now in Zion. It will be completely redone, the topography. When Jesus comes back, he'll tell us at the end, the latter chapters, his foot will stand on the Mount of Olives. It'll cleave in two. Water will fall forth to the Dead Sea, heal it, to the Mediterranean, um, to set up the kingdom. And so this whole plumb line, um, measuring, measuring line, if you will, is to, that God is moving. And again, they've been in captivity, but God is bringing them back in the land. Now they're back in the land, but they're not back with God at first. Now they're back with God now as a remnant, okay, because they've repented. And um, Zechariah asks you where he's going. He says to measure Jerusalem. Short term, the exodus of the Babylonian captivity. You have the remnant coming back, just a hair under 50,000. Uh, difficult time. Um, there's no walls. There's nothing. Long-term wise is the millennial kingdom, the kingdom age. Jerusalem will become the capital of the world. Now, that doesn't sound very favorable to a lot of people today. I am amazed at the amount of anti-Semitism that comes from Christians and churches. And uh, people that teach um, replacement theology don't realize that that is, is unbiblical and really, um, when God speaks about Jerusalem and Zion, he means exactly that. When he speaks about the remnant, he speaks about exactly that. None of those promises are to the church. 
The church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church. The church is the bride of Christ looking for a wedding. Israel is the the wife that's been put away by divorce. Two big differences between them. Now in verse 3 to 5, we have the two angels. He says, And there was an angel who talked with me going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him. So as he's going out, the, guy, the other angel's coming in. And he says to him, Run, speak to the young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I say, or, or I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Now, the angel talking to Zechariah here went out, and we've got different angels, and you have to keep kind of track of them, and he's coming out, and he meets the one that's going away from Zechariah, and he tells him to run and speak to the young man regarding Jerusalem. It shall be inhabited, towns without walls, multitude of men and livestock. Now, this was not right away. First of all, the young man is Zechariah, so that's an indication that possibly um, Haggai was older than Zechariah. But the Mormons say that the young man is Joseph Smith, and the angel who told him were to uncover the golden plates. Well, that's kind of hard to believe. And those are the kind of nonsense that people do with the scriptures, cults, and people that m- manipulate and um, teach subjectively whatever they want. They come up with their own interpretation. And, um, and they deceive many, many people. Um, the context, again, is the kingdom age. Jerusalem will not need any walls for protection in the kingdom age. And it's going to expand. Now, God would be the wall of fire, as it says here in verse 5, for protection. Um, in the kingdom age, there will be no walls needed at all. Walls speak of protection. The proverb says that a man that has no control of his spirit is like a city without walls. So we're not subject to the spirit of God and we're allowing our flesh to rule us. It will, we will destroy ourselves. A city without walls open to destruction and that's the way we are if we're not walking. God's like a, a hedge around us. As we yield to him, as we trust him and depend upon him. So, now the walls were built later by Nehemiah. That's why he came back to build the walls of Jerusalem. Um, that's still ahead of what, where we're at. But that will take place. But this is talking about the millennial kingdom. When Jesus will be in the midst of them. Notice that the glory would be in her midst. Um, Jesus will return with power and great glory, he said in, in many of the Gospels, Matthew 24, 30 is one of them. And um, um, he will destroy the armies of the world that would be there to stop him from setting up the kingdom. Psalm 2 gives us, he says he will have them in derision, he shall laugh at them. And um, he will destroy them and overcome them. And he uh, ends the psalm by saying, kiss the son lest he be angry with you. Now, if you were a Catholic, you know exactly what he's talking about. Because every person who worships idols kisses his idol. This is the way I used to make the cross. That's the way you do it, see? And so you kiss your idol in devotion. He says, you want to be devoted to anybody, you kiss the sun. 
That's who you should be devoted to and worship. And he will laugh at them. He will have them in derision, great power and glory. And he will come back, set up the kingdom. Um, and again, the kingdom also, sometimes people believe the kingdom is, um, is where there's going to be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. But that's not true. Now, for you and I that are glorified, we're going to rule and reign with Jesus. But the people that entered the tribulation, from the tribulation that didn't take on the mark of the beast, Jesus will redo the whole millennial kingdom, the earth, in terms of um, long age and the animals won't be fierce. But there will still be sin. The way we know that, as Isaiah says, oh, the child died at a hundred. Young. <laughs> So wherever you have death, you have sin. Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. Satan will be bound for those thousand years, but those people who enter the kingdom, who didn't take the mark of the beast, they will live a life like you and I do right now, have to accept the Lord, have to repent, have to go to Jerusalem. The overall environment of the world will change back to like pre-Adamic but sin nature will still be there by those and it's not till after the thousand years in the white throne judgment then we have the new heaven the new earth where there will be no tears no more sorrow no more pain okay so the kingdom age again the temple of uh, the millennial is in Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48 we did a whole study on that. Now, when you come to verse 6 and 7, we have the calling of his people from captivity. In verse 6, he says, Up, up, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord. For I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Up, Zion, escape. You who dwell in the daughter of Babylon. And so here in verse 6 and 7, God is calling them out of Babylon. The 70 years are over. But see, many of them didn't return because they were agrarian before they went in. But when they went into Babylon, they learned the business, marketing, all that kind of stuff. They became very prosperous. Um, many of them did not return. Only 50,000, a little bit under 50,000 returned. The rest remained. You remember the book of Esther. Many Jews. Okay? When Haman was going to kill them. Uh, Revelation 18.4 says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you should uh, share in her sins, and lest you receive her plagues. Of course, he's talking about Babylon the harlot, the mother of harlots. Commercial and religious Babylon under the hand of the Antichrist that Jesus Christ will destroy. And so the same parallel, Babylon is always uh, the enemy of God. Uh, in Jerusalem, the two most mentioned cities, Jerusalem outnumbers Babylon, but that is the enemy of God. Um, God took the responsibility and notice of scattering them in the past and in the future to the four winds of heaven. So in other words, God is the one who's in control and God chastens his own people and God deals with them. And as he had put them into Babylon and now he calls them out because now he's going to have Medo-Persia destroy them. But um, the book of Esther is 50, 60 years after the return and there were still millions of Jews that had not left. 
Now, we are told to come out from among them, not be unequally yoked in the book of Corinthians. And yet, some Christians just don't pay attention. And they get caught up with the flesh again or go back to the old neighborhood, go around the candy man or whatever it is. And, and they get themselves in trouble. Because they don't, they think that, well, I, I'll be able to handle it. Listen, you're trying to handle sin like trying to handle a cobra. You may think you're slick, but you're going to get bit. There's no way. And so the cry of God to us is always to flee all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, pride of life. Okay, garbage in, garbage out. Okay, you have to be careful. Now, God gives emphasis by saying, up Zion, escape, to make sure that you're talking about here. He's talking about the Jews. He's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about Mount Zion. You cannot apply this to the church. Now, if you teach replacement theology that the church now has replaced Israel, then you're going to give all these things to the church. That is ridiculous. That is absolutely um, so dishonest and it does violence to the text that God makes very clear that he's talking about the nation of Israel, no one else. The Lord has been doing this throughout our own days. Jews from all over the world, particularly Russia and Africa, have immigrated back to the land, 1980s, all the way to the 2000s, and great droves. Now, they're still coming, and not as many, but um, that is only partial. God will gather them at the end of the tribulations, the four winds or the four corners of the earth. Now, it's interesting, and just to give you, I'm sure some of you are aware of it. If not, you'll be shocked. But there are a lot of people who today who propose that the earth is flat. The flat earth society. Look it up on the internet. It is amazing. You've got to have a flat brain to believe that. I mean, my Lord, are you kidding me? And they are dead serious. And they think they're the sharpest knife in the tool chest. Amazing. Amazing. So... Long term, for the end of the great tribulation, Jesus will do this. He will gather the Jews. He will bring them back. There's a very difficult time for Israel ahead. Jacob's trouble in um, Jeremiah 30, verse 7. The last 70th week of Daniel. Daniel 9, 27. Chapter 6 to 18 of the book of Revelation. Um, Israel will have to flee to the city of Petra, we believe, where God will protect her the last three and a half years. Two of three Jews, Zechariah will tell us in the latter chapters, will die under the hand of the Antichrist. Amazing. Verse 8 and 9, the Lord Jesus is the one sent who the Jews will look to at the second coming. Verse 8 says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. For surely I will shake my hand against them, and they shall become spoil for the, uh, their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Mark well that God says about the Jew that they are the apple of his eye. He's the natural protector of the Jew. Now, that does not mean that God is for Israel 
right now as he's going to be when he pours out his spirit. But it tells us that God is not through with Israel. He's brought her back into the land. They're back in the land, but they're not back with God. The majority of Jews are just secular Jews. The only real religious one are the hard hat with the curls. Orthodox. Okay? They don't even believe that Israel has a right to exist as a nation. And they asked years back to the Jordan, king of Jordan, to annex them. It's amazing. But here, in the apple of your eye is your pupil. And if something comes through your eye, you protect it right away. You know it's delicate. Now, you chasing your own children, but if your neighbor stepped in, it would not go well, would it? Now, that does not mean that we agree or that we are in... Um, harmony with, with everything that Israel does. But we are smart enough to understand Genesis twelve three: Those that bless you, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. So God will deal with Israel. And everything that happens regarding prophecy is always in relationship to Israel. Not America. Not Rome. Not Russia, though Russia will play a great role just before the Great Tribulation. And so, short view and long-term view at his coming, God himself will chasten the nation. They will know when it happens that God had sent me, the angel of the Lord, the Messiah. It's capitalized for a reason. Okay? They rejected him in the first coming. Zachariah will tell us later on, where you receive these wounds, I receive them in the house of my friends. They will look upon whom they have pierced. Amazing. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. If you would have known this your day, the things that were prepared for you now, they are hidden from your eyes. And you shall not see me henceforth till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he wept over Jerusalem. They miss their day. Isaiah 14, 1 and 2 says, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them and they will cling to the house of Jacob. Then people will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel uh, will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord, they will take them captive, whose captives they were, and rule over the oppressors. When Jesus sets up the millennial kingdom, the Gentile world will serve the Jew. All the wealth will be brought into Jerusalem. We don't have time to get sidetracked. If you haven't been with us in our series on the millennium, I would encourage you to pick it up and, and, and sit down and go through it. You will blow your mind. Verse 10 through 13, we have the kingdom age again. Um, here he says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. Here it is confirmed again. And they shall become my people and I will dwell 
uh, in your midst. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, has sent me to you. And the Lord will take possession of Judah and his inheritance in the Holy Land. How can you say, verse 12 there, let's take that, take his possession of Judah. How can you apply that to the church? His inheritance in the Holy Land. That's Israel. Only time Holy Land is mentioned, right here. And will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, O flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. And so here, singing and rejoicing will be the response in Zion when Jesus dwells in her midst. The Gentiles who believe in him will be one with him. There will be a great following. The nations will come to Jerusalem once a year or they won't get rain. So many pilgrimages that will be done. The Gentiles who believe will be with him. Psalm 2, Isaiah chapter 2 speaks about it. Verse 2 through 4, chapter 11. There's so many paths in the millennial kingdom. Zechariah himself in chapter 8, verse 20 through 23 gives us the same thing. As the nations will come and they will bow their knee to Jesus. He will take Judah again, verse 12, his possession, millennial kingdom. It isn't happening right now, the holy land. But the only thing that makes it holy over there today is the bullets they shoot. There's no peace. You've got every religion existing there in the old city. But there's no true worship of God. Even though they go to the Wailing Wall. It's the closest part to the Holy of Holies that they know it was right beyond that wall. But they have no sacrifice. They have no temple. They have no shedding of blood. So what do you do with the Day of Atonement? You turn it into a day of works. So before that Day of Atonement, you try to do as many good things to outweigh your bad things. Oh my Lord, are you kidding me? Crazy. Just not going to happen. We're just not that good. We're just good for nothing. Listen to Isaiah 2, verse 2 and 3. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. Listen. And shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What do you do with all these verses if you teach replacement theology? If you say that the church is Israel, what do you do with these? You're destroying the whole text. Verse 13, all will be silent before the Lord in view of what? What God is going to do. No one's going to say now. Hey, wait, wait, but you can't do that. No one's going to say anything. Everybody has a big mouth down here. Especially today. Because we've been neutered. By the government. It used to be when I grew up, if you shoot your mouth out, somebody cleaned your clock and it was over. You learned the lesson. You're ready for life. Today, government protects you. You get sued. You go to jail. So everybody's a little girl. It's too bad. It's really too bad. 
because it sets up the nation to be ruled and to like oppression and tyranny. Plato's Republic. You submit to me and therefore I'm the elite, so whatever suffering I give to you, you deserve because I'm better than you. Wow. Very progressive. The word arouser means to awake in terms of taking action, not that he's asleep. God doesn't need sleep. Isaiah 31, 5 says, like birds flying about, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem, defending he will also deliver it passing over and he will preserve it. Some believe that prophecy was fulfilled by, uh, by General Allenby as he dropped leaflets over Jerusalem because he was going to ready to bomb it. And the Arabs thought that they were going to do something and they fled and they didn't have to bomb Jerusalem. Amazing little prophecy. Zechariah 12.8 says, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before him. There's a great day for Israel ahead, but man, there's a great suffering like they've never suffered. Hitler will be like a Girl Scout compared to the Antichrist. It's horrible. Listen to Jesus. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is God's footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. <laughs> God loves Jerusalem. He has angels around the walls watching it day and night. Wow. Chapter 3. We have the clothing of Joshua, the high priest. This is the fourth vision. If you count ten visions, then this would be uh, uh, divided into two, Joshua and the branch, and you would have the fifth and the sixth. Okay? So, chapter 3, verse uh, 1 and 2, we have the presence of Joshua before the Lord. We did this in depth on Sunday morning. Um, he says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not the brand plucked from the fire? So once again here, Joshua is the representative of the nation of Israel, the high priest. The nation of Israel has been judged by God. He has put her in, in Babylon. The adversary, Satan, is the accuser. But this is the courtroom of heaven. And he has chastened the nation. And now he's going to restore her. The angel of the Lord of Christophany once again, as we've seen. This is again the heavenly court. And he's going to reconcile and justify the nation. But through the representation of Joshua. Um, the Lord rebukes Satan here because he's at the right hand, the place of a, a good report, but he's a deceiver, he's a liar. He's their accused, he's the accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12.10 says, and he's before the throne accusing you and me every day. And Jesus stands up and he defends us. And that's why it's important that we keep our accounts short. As 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I write these things that you do not practice sin. But when you stumble, fall, you have Jesus Christ the righteous, your lawyer for the defense. 
Now, he's a weird lawyer. He doesn't take any innocent pleas. He doesn't plea bargain. You must admit you're guilty. Then he can get you off. Where there's true repentance, there's confession, homologo, to say the same thing. God says, that's sin. He says, well, I don't know. I don't listen to you. Not until you agree with him and you ask forgiveness. And then he connects the communication wires all over again in fellowship. It's just that simple and that clear. And so the Lord, notice, has chosen Jerusalem. Chapter 1, 14, 16, verse 17. Chapter 8, 3, 12, 8. Over and over again. Jerusalem is mentioned 42 times in these 14 chapters. Israel, a brand, a brand plucked from the fire. The Babylonian captivity. Um, Wesley uh, claimed this for himself. If you were with us in our study of Amos, Amos 4.11, God says, you know, I, you were like a, a brand plucked out of the fire as God and his mercy didn't bring judgment right away. He reigned here and they went there and they didn't repent. They just searched water. They went here. I did this. You didn't repent. I did this. You didn't repent. Then he finally says, prepare to meet your God for judgment. And so God's mercy plucked out of the fire. Um, Book of Jude tells us, verse 23, that we're to be um, discerning and careful lest we get our our garment uh, burned or stained. So we have to use wisdom when we minister to people that are in deep sin, lest you get sucked in. So you have to use wisdom and ask God for direction and and, um, just guidance in everything you do. In verse 3 on down to 5, we have the cleansing of Joshua's filthy garments. he says, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him, he says, see, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, let them put on a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. And so here, the unrighteousness of the sin of Israel is before God. Our natural sinfulness is ever before us. Uh, Isaiah 64, 6, our righteousness is as filthy rags, and the word there is a menstrual garment. That's how good our bad is, or how bad our good is. (laughs) It just... The men that were born into this world, we have this sin nature, and it doesn't take long for us to manifest it in various ways. And the older we get, the more mature it gets, unless we walk in the Spirit. And so God cleanses, notice the sin of the nation as the divine judge here. He, he imputes this righteousness to Joshua as a representative so that he can properly intercede and represent the nation. Um, Directly as the nation, indirectly, of course, Joshua's sin is being um, forgiven here and reconciled. Um, Jesus Christ speaks about it through Paul in Romans chapter 3. He speaks about um, the righteousness of Jesus Christ being imputed to us. Uh, That's why he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and the Gentile. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2, 4, he's quoting. And he hammers that 
theme, that proposition throughout the book of Romans from every angle. So in chapter 1, you see how bad you are. In chapter 2, those that think they're a little better find out they're just as bad because they don't do the thing, but they get off on the people that do do them. Chapter 3, everybody's face is on the ground, even Abraham. The golden calf has been melted. Chapter 4 and 5, now we're justified before God. Chapter 6, we have the ability to yield our life as instruments of righteousness or unrighteousness now, being born again. There's a choice. Chapter 7, we think we still can do it in our flesh. So we start saying, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? So we want to move to chapter 8, life in the spirit, no condemnation, okay? No more I, 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 okay? You, could, you might think that maybe a Mexican wrote chapter 7 of Romans, you know? But... Life in the Spirit, chapter 8. Then he takes a little detour. Here we go again. Replacement theology, chapter 9, 10, 11. Israel will be saved. Chapter 12, present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Then he gives you the practical aspect of living your life out. Whoa. All based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What he did for you because you couldn't do it for yourself. Wow. Incredible mercy and grace. And so, these filthy rags, expression of the most loathsome character, some have translated to mean literal excrement. The nation had gotten so far away from God, had gotten into all this idolatry, all this debauchery, and all of the idolatry was always affiliated with sexual sin. Okay? The Bible says that behind idols are demons. And all those religious cults always had to do with the gods of fertility. Today, it's the same thing exists. The pornography industry is a religion, a cult. Same thing. And so we have to understand the tools of Satan to destroy lives. Satan said to Eve and Adam, Oh, you will not die. Really? Hmm, was he wrong? No, he was a liar. The high priest needed to be forgiven so he could be the intercessor for the nation. God's mercy here. The chastening is over. The prophet Zechariah jumps into the celebration. He's excited. Verse 5. And he says, hey, let's put a turban on him. Because <laughs> the priest has the vesture and then the mitre. The mitre in Exodus 28, 36-38. It said, with gold, holiness of the Lord. With a blue robe, blue symbolic of heaven. The head, the thoughts of man, the high priest must match the very conduct of his life. The two must be one. In verse 6 down to 10, you have the future millennial restoration of Israel again. Um, he says, then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua. So the um, Christophany here, directly to Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge of my course. I will give you... Places to walk among those who stand here. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you. 
for they are a wondrous sign, for behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will move the iniquity or remove the iniquity um, of that land in one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. So, verse 6 through 7, the promise of God to Joshua and the conditions. Notice, he says, the angel of the Lord is the one administering here and admonishing Joshua. The conditions, if you walk in my way, speaking of faithfulness, the ways of God, holiness, his standard. If you keep my command, speaking of obedience to the things that are written, the promise, you shall judge my house, you shall have charge of my course, I shall give you a place to walk. This is the millennial kingdom. It will never happen here in this lifetime. In this world. Verse 8 through 10, the priesthood points to the kingdom age. Joshua and his companion priests are a wondrous sign, meaning a shadow or type of what's just been introduced. The Messiah, the branch. Joshua is the Hebrew name that means Yahweh salvation and it's translated to the Greek Jesus. My servant, the branch, notice that, refers to the shoot or the sprout of Jesse, the Messiah to come. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, 11, 1 and 2, 42, 1, 49, 6, 52, 3, 53, 2, 11, Jeremiah 25, 5, Ezekiel 34, 23, 24, on and on and on. The branch. In fact, the root goes to of Nazareth. That also is a relationship to the branch. The second coming of Jesus in verse 9. The stone is the one not cut with hands that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. It struck the image at the feet, the ten toes of iron and clay, and it destroyed it. And it just grew and overtook and overcame the whole earth, which means established the kingdom. A stone cut not without hands, virgin birth. Daniel two thirty four through 35. Jesus is that stone that... The builders rejected. He made often quotes of Psalm 118, 22, Matthew 21, 42, 1 Peter 2, 6, and other places. And so this is speaking about the Messiah, the kingdom age. The seven eyes are symbolic of complete wisdom, referring here by Isaiah in chapter 11, verse 2. Seven is the number of completeness, not perfection. You have seven notes on the music scale, seven colors, seven days of the week. Complete, not perfect. Okay? John saw in the midst of the throne four living creatures. In the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. And there are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. Revelation 5, 6. So the seven is, is mentioned in many different ways, referring to God. In other words, his complete understanding, his knowledge, his presence, all that he needs. He needs no information. He needs no help. And yet we've seen already in the visions that they keep expanding. Watchers, the watchers, the angels are sent to different things throughout the earth. Different things they're watching. They, they, they're, they're directing. They're guiding. They're reporting. 
The father assured Joshua here the fulfillment. Behold, I will engrave this inscription, says the Lord of hosts. The church fathers interpret this to mean maybe the scars and the hands and the body of Jesus. Isaiah says that we will see him. We'll say um, there is no beauty in him that we shall desire him. Zechariah is going to tell us, I already mentioned it, where do you receive these wounds? In the house of my friends. But this could simply mean that through the repetition of the engraving of Scripture that these prophecies are just affirmed. But all God has to say it is once, but when he says it more than once, we need to pay attention to it. Notice also the Father reveals immediately after the second coming the kingdom age would be set up. And I will remove the iniquity of that land. Listen, in one day. That's millennial. That day is a key phrase in Scripture. We've gone through it. The land and the people go together like Twinkies, peanut butter and jam, tacos and beans. Okay? The authority is from the captain of the armies of heaven. Notice, says the Lord of hosts in verse 10, the emblem and symbol of peace and prosperity affirms the kingdom age. Everyone will invite his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. Remember when Jesus said to Nathaniel, Behold, in Israel which there is no guile. How do you know me? I saw you under the fig tree. What's that? That was a practice of Jews to read the scriptures under the fig tree. As they were looking for the kingdom age. Okay. You also have it in 1 Kings 4, 24 through 25 and Michael 4, 4 and other passages. The context is kingdom age. Now in chapter 4, we have the lampstand, the olive tree in the fifth vision. Now if you count ten visions, this would be the seventh vision. And we uh, did this in pretty in-depth this morning. If you weren't here, I would encourage you to get it. But... Verse 1 through 3, the angel approaches here, Zechariah. He says, now the angel talked with me, uh, came back and awakened me as a man who was awakened out of his sleep. <clears throat> and he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking. And there's uh, um, a lampstand of solid gold and a bowl on the top of it. And on the lamp, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Um, the angel awakens Zechariah. He must have dozed off, as I said this morning. Remember, he received all these uh, visions in one night. Um, but now he's awakened, so he's still receiving a vision, okay? He's not asleep. And I pointed out this morning. Now, the angel asked him if he understood what he was seeing. Uh, Zechariah responds that he saw the lampstand of solid gold in um, the seven lampstands. And so his perceptive Spiritual perception was good. And this is much like the one that was in the tabernacle, solid gold. Um, but Solomon also had, but Solomon had ten of them. Okay, so it's a little different. And um, as we look at this one, no one had to refill them. In the tabernacle, the high priest would have to refill the oil and the wicks evening and morning. Here, uh, the vision is that no human... Uh, agency is the one to supply the necessary oil. And oil is always symbolic of the Holy Spirit as a first rule of mention unless otherwise is indicated. And so um, he saw these two olive trees um, in, in verse 3. He says two olive trees are by it, the one on the right 
of the bowl, the other on the left. And then in verse 4 through 5, the prophet inquired of the angel the meaning of the vision. And he says, so I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. <laughs> Notice that some of the books that people say, oh, you don't want to read that book. Oh, that is so confusing. We're being walked step by step. The angel's giving all the interpretation. You, you can't make a mistake. It's like the books they used to give you in school. You know, the answer's in the back of the book. Listen, study your Bible. The answers are in the book. Okay? They're not outside the book. They're in the book. When we were in school, they said, do not cheat. Do not look in the back. God is saying, please cheat. Look in the book. Just like sinners, huh? They tell us not to do it, we do it. God tells us to do it, we say, no, I don't want to do it. Wow. He saw the particulars of the vision, but had no perception spiritually. He didn't understand them. The angel surprised, which implies that he possibly should have. And it's left there. It's not explained or anything else. In verse 6 and 7, the angel delivered the message. Now, for Zerubbabel. He says, so, the, so he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to wit. And so the angel delivers his message for Zerubbabel very um, directly to him. This was God's word of encouragement to Zerubbabel over the obstacles of, that had come along their way for the building of the temple. As you know that they had received opposition by the Samaritans and others. They had been falsely accused. The building had been delayed and ceased for 16 years. And yet God here is saying he's a captain of the armies of heaven, the Lord of hosts. In other words, he will protect them. He's going to remove all those things. The confirmation of that is in verse 7. He would remove this mountain. All these obstacles that seem impossible. Sometimes you and I will find ourselves in situations like that. What am I going to do? Well, if I'm walking with God, I go to Him in prayer. Prayer is not the last thing we should do. It's the first thing we should do. Often we try to take care of everything and handle it in the flesh. And then we say, okay, nothing works. I guess we should pray. No, we should do that first. And then God may direct us to do different things. But we keep on praying that God would guide and direct us. Long-term, notice the word me. It refers to Jesus once again. Verse 9. The building came to pass. The confirmation. The angel communicated the words of God revealed to him in verse 8. He assures the river bell. He would finish the temple in verse 9. Who is the one speaking? The captain of the armies of heaven. All will be removed. 
It began in 536, 35 B.C., a couple of years after they arrived at Jerusalem. Ezra 3, 8 through 11 tells us the work had ceased, as I said, 16 years. They resumed in August 24, the 520 B.C., the second year of Darius. Haggai 1.15 tells us. And Yahweh declared what would be accomplished by him. His hands shall also finish it. Not by human ability or strength, but by the power of the Spirit of God. If you are looking to your own abilities to do the work of God, to live the life of Christ, you're going to fail miserably. And you're always going to be bowing to God. I'll never do that again. The minute you do that, you're going to do it. You have to trust the Lord and empty yourself of yourself and depend totally on Him. Ask Him to fill you with His Spirit. To stay in His Word. To stay in fellowship. To bring your thoughts into captivity. To put on the armor of God. To do good warfare. It's a winnable warfare. It's important that we understand that. The date now is 519 at this point, And they finished in the sixth year of Darius. In March the 3rd of 516 B.C. So examining Haggai and then Ezra 615. He gives you that date. Um, three years from this point And four years from the re, uh, resuming of the work. And so when this is being said, it's still in the future. God knows the end from the beginning. God's the only one that can predict the future. That's why prophecy is an amazing thing in the Bible. People that don't believe in the Bible, they have to explain to me prophecy. What other religion has prophecy? Who else claims it? Nobody. Verse 10, God asks, who despised the day of small things? Notice what he says there. He says, for who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line, the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. And so the day of small things, despising them. People don't want to start at the bottom. They want to start at the top. One of the most tragic things that I've seen in my life as a Christian is ministers who put their children in ministry without having the Lord call them, anoint them, or the Lord bring them up through the ranks, but they give them everything altogether, they destroy them. The sons of Eli, they were laying with the women, ripping off the offerings, and Eli did nothing about it. Well, God did something about it. He killed both his sons, and he also got Eli. I'm amazed at how dumb we are. And how we think that we can do what we want. This is not my church. This is not your church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And we belong to him. And it's by his mercy that he's so gracious to us. Ladies and gentlemen. God help us. Never despise the day of small things. This ministry started with a Bible study with three people. God raised it up. God provided. God's done everything. I've done nothing. I'm shocked every time I turn the corner, I see this building. 36, 37 years now. Amazing to me. I just pinch myself. It's amazing. His goodness. Verse 11 through 14, the angel gives the interpretation that he put off. He didn't answer it right away. He directed himself to Zerubbabel. The message now, 
Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at his left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches and drip in the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered to me and said, Do you not know what these are? And he said, No, my Lord. So he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. And so the prophet wants to make the connection. He just can't get it. You know, it's like you trying to teach somebody math and it just doesn't get it. You remember, do they teach fractions anymore? It was always, you know, that common denominator. Once you got it, man, it was just bing. But man, when you didn't, you just went crazy. This is Zechariah. He just doesn't get it. And now the angel connects the dots for him and he goes, sheesh, you got it. These two olive trees, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Joshua in chapter 3, verse 1, he's standing before the angel of the Lord. Okay? Zerubbabel, his name. Those are the two. They are going to fulfill all that God's going to do by his spirit. Especially Zerubbabel in this context of chapter 4. Not by human strength and might. This could be a long-term prophecy also for the tribulation time. The great tribulation. When the Antichrist, the two witnesses, will be opposing the Antichrist and bringing fire from heaven and bringing plagues upon the earth and stopping rain and everything else. And there's just going to be a pain to the Antichrist and he will kill them. They will lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three days. The whole world will party. They'll be sending gifts with them. Everybody will looking at them. And after the third day, the Spirit of God will come upon them. They will go straight up to heaven and the world will go, oops. This could be a reference of the two witnesses. Short term, Joshua, Zerubbabel. Long term, the two witnesses. Now, the two most prominent candidates, if I judge it the scripture, it's Elijah and Enoch, because both of them have never died. But God has already promised Zerubbabel a special work in the last days. So he's a candidate, because God can do whatever he wants. You also have... um, um, John, in the book of Revelation, God says he's going to use him in the last day. And so you have, um, some even believe Elijah because they will be able to bring down fire from heaven and, and uh, call water and all that kind of stuff, turn into blood. And, but we'll find out. Exciting things. But notice how God's mercy carries us through. The book is interpreted all on its own. I should be able to just sit here and read it and just walk through it and we just walk out and go home. That's how the book of Revelation is. God gives us the table of contents of chapter 1. Because he didn't, he didn't want to take a chance of the weird interpretation we would get out of the book of Revelation. So he gave us the table of contents. And if you go by the table of contents, the first chapter is the things he saw, the glorified Christ, the things that are the churches, chapter 2 and 3, the message of the churches, and the things hereafter, Metatelta. Chapter 4 and 5, the church is raptured to, the, to heaven, and then we're before the throne. And chapter 6 to 18, you have the tribulation, great tribulation. Chapter 19, the second coming. And chapter um, 20, the, the uh, thousand year reign, white throne judgment, new heaven, the new earth. Easiest book. Figurative language, literal things happening. Why are you to know it? So you can warn people. 
you don't want to be here for the tribulation and great tribulation. Pray that you be worthy to escape all these things that will come upon the earth and stand before the Son of Man. The Gospel of Luke 21 says. If it happens automatically, why do we have to pray that we be worthy? Pray and be ready, he says. At such a time as you think not, the Son of Man comes. Lord, thank you for your love and your goodness. Thank you for your grace and your word and your patience towards us, Lord, and your goodness. I thank you for every person tonight, Lord. I thank you for the young people you're bringing. I thank you for the young families, Lord, and that you ground and just continue to mold and shape the heads of the home, Lord, the men, raise up godly men in the church, Lord, to serve you, to be that example, to pray for the community, to pray for their loved ones, their friends, and, Father, that you would use us for your glory in a greater way than you ever have before these 36 years, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Jesus died in your place. He loves you. He doesn't want to see you perish. He wants to make you his child, but it comes through you acknowledging your sinfulness and that he died in your place and that he is able to forgive you and to transform your life. And then he makes you a child of God by grace of faith. If this is your desire and your decision, it's the work of the Spirit of God in your life. And now the ball's in your court. If this is your commitment, this is your prayer to Him. It's called a prayer of repentance to ask Him to forgive you of your sins. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.